And so a good sermon is not measured by the acceptance of the listeners, but by its fidelity to God's word. And everyone says they're faithful to God's word. So your job, and particularly a pastor's job, is to, to filter, to, to, to assess in such a way that those who come saying, hey, I'm on the same team, and they look like they're wearing the same jersey we are, that we evaluate carefully, biblically, whether or not they are actually true to their claim. And I think recognize that within our culture, there are times where people are sincere. They are not meaning to be instruments of falsehood, but they are. And so sincerity is also not an evaluating point that we should take very far. I do think the apostle, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 2 makes it really clear that he was speaking in sincerity. So it is a good thing to be sincere. Insincerity is bad, but it is not the measure. Having said all of that, my outline this morning is more of a sentence. So I'm going to take you through 1 Corinthians 3, and I would suggest to you that as we think through the church and ministry, we start here, that we do this, now here's where our sentence starts, for the glory of God. For the glory of God. That's why we do what we do. That's why a preacher preaches the way he preaches and the content of his preaching. That is why church does the work we do. This is why you should be here on a Sunday morning. This is why we are engaged in the task we're doing. This is why we should church plant. You know, church planting is going to be rotten. I just want to tell you that. I want you to think about this for a second. Our goal of church planting is to produce another church, and hopefully after that, another church, and hopefully after that, another church. You know what we're going to do in that church plant? We're going to take some of you and kick you out. That's going to be rotten. I don't want to lose any of you. I mean, some of our best ministers are going to go. That's horrible. That's not fun. It's good. So see some of the sweet faces that love us and whom we love and who encourage and strengthen us in the Lord. And to see them leave us in terms of gathering on a regular basis is going to be heartbreaking and sweet. 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about church planting. I think he very clearly calls us to recognize it's a God-centered, God-focused, God-driven work. Verse 5, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants. Servants of whom? Why are they servants? Well, here's what he says. Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are unified, that is, they're one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The work of the church, the ministry of the church, particularly speaking here of the initiating work of the church and its ongoing work is God-centric. Why is Paul working? I work as God assigned me. I'm a servant. I'm a slave is the word, right? So how does Paul look at his ministry? Did Paul start out and be like, you know, I'm going to do something glorious for Jesus. It's like, man, I am so good. When people hear me talk, they just fall on their faces and repent. Is that what he's thinking? Why is Paul chosen? I misused that word on purpose. This ministry. He got picked. 
He got drafted. He gets no glory. God did this. Why is Apollos in ministry? God did this. They assigned us to this task. Well, it must be a really high task, like your CEO type status, right? No, I'm a slave. This is about God. This is about God. He's calling the Corinthians to repent of their pride and their arrogance, where they're exalting super, the super apostles. Yeah, you don't get it. I'm a slave. I've been appointed. I get no credit or praise for this. In fact, Apollos doesn't either. And he says, we're fellow workers. He doesn't say we're God's fellow workers in the sense that he and God are laboring side by side. His point is Apollos and I are laboring side by side in the Lord's field as the Lord's servant. We're the Lord's possession. And that's what unifies and brings us together as we are the Lord's. So when someone says we're co-workers with the Lord, they've misunderstood the text of Scripture. What they should be saying is you and I are co-workers in this field and we are the Lord's. Why do we do the work of the church? Because God assigns us, he gifts us, and he makes us responsible to obey him. Not only that, when you look at this text, where does the growth come from? God, not preachers. Not planters. Apollos has watered. Paul had planted the church. As an aside, this is not, you hear this often, like, well, I just planted a seed. You know, Starbucks is talking to this guy. I shared the gospel with him. Hopefully someone else can come along and water that thing. That is not what he's talking about. He's saying, I started this church. I planted it. And the Lord has called me on. And so now Apollos has taken over the ministry and assumed that role of shepherding this church. And so it's kind of looking sequentially at the life of a plant. And he's saying the church was started, it sprouted, it was growing great. And now someone else is cultivating it and continues to cultivate it. And you know what Apollos could say? Someone else is coming after me and they're going to water some more. It's not that the church isn't saved. In order to be planted, they are saved already. And now the, the ministry of encouraging and edifying is done by Apollos. The Corinthians have no right to brag on their leader because God deserves all the glory. Who gives the growth? God does. Good preaching hasn't saved anyone ever, never will. And you know what? In the middle of bad preaching, God can still save. People get saved going to Catholic churches. They get saved going to bad ministries. And they get saved going to good ones. God gives growth. Okay, so we do this for the glory of God by preaching Christ. Look with me in verse 9 and following. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Now, he's just said God gets all the glory, and now he's reminding them of their place. You're God's field, God's building. And it's when he changes from, like, farm to building. You feel it? You're God's field farm. He used that same idea of God owns you, and now he changes trajectory in his analogy and says, God's building. Same truth, your God's, your God's. Analogy, field, building. So now we're in the building analogy. You tracking? Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care Literally, that word has the idea of watch out. You'd see this if you walk by a place with a crazy rabid dog. Beware. Look out. For what? 
You need to pay attention, take care, keep your eye on how he builds. And now he explains just briefly what he means. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so the central means by which we glorify God is Christ, laying a foundation in ministry named Christ. We have to go back into the context. This passage actually is contained from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way down through uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, and I actually think beyond that. So we're looking at a larger section here. Look with me back into verse 23 of chapter 1. The Jews are demanding a sign. The Greeks seek for wisdom. This is part of the ways they're corrupting the gospel. Verse 23, we preach what? Christ crucified. The crucifixion being a stumbling block for Jews. Because in the crucifixion, Christ was declared, according to Jewish scriptures, right? Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That Jesus Christ is very clearly condemned by God through means of hanging him on a tree. Now, they were, that, that scripture and Jewish culture would have generally thought of literally hanging. But someone being hung on a cross by a means of nails is still hung on a tree. And so, the Jews are looking there, they're saying, oh, this Messiah, God is appointed servant, is condemned by God? I don't think so. That's not the way this works. We know the Old Testament. We read Deuteronomy, and he's cursed by God. So he's clearly not the Messiah. As Paul's preaching, trust in the Messiah. He's God's blessed one. And they're like, he's God's cursed one. You can see why it's hard for the Jewish mind to wrap itself around this claim of Paul. They don't get it. So it's, it's to them a stumbling block. Like, oh, man, the Messiah is Jesus. Great. Wait, wait, hold on. Jesus? The guy that got crucified? And they stop. They struggle. Okay, continuing on, and folly to Gentiles. The Gentile idea of a God, or maybe they would see Jesus as a demigod, is powerful and mighty, Herculean, victorious, not weak, not filled with human frailty, not killable. The idea that the king of kings would humble himself and be meek is bizarre and unfitting with Greek sophistry or wisdom. And it's not merely that, though. The Greeks want powerful speakers. They want noble speakers. They want men of confidence and clarity and skill and speech. That's not how Paul preached Christ. Look down in verse 30 and 31. He preaches Christ, and here's why. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You don't need Greek wisdom. This is a better wisdom. And the, the reason why he makes clear in this text is that so our faith and confidence is in God, not our reason, not our understanding, not in the confidence of the human speaker. Listen, human speakers can get you to buy snake oil. But what brings you to faith in Jesus Christ? is in fact the power of the Spirit of God. Which is why in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he is telling them, this is manifested in the folly of preaching. Look down with me in verses 4 and 5. My speech, that's the word logos, it means the content. He's already talked about Christ crucified. And my message, that's kerugma. It speaks to the heralding, the preaching, the declaration. 
were done in weakness, verse 3 says. And they were not in plausible words, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Both the content and the means of delivering the content are designed by God not to magnify the preacher, nor to misplace the hearer's faith in the preacher. No one should walk out of hearing the word of God expounded impressed with the preacher. But with the Son of God. No one who listens to good preaching should walk away thinking they're wise for agreeing with it. They should walk away humbled by God's majestic wisdom that's designed to shame the proud and bring glory and majesty to the Son. He makes this clear. This is why in verse 14 of chapter 2, the natural person does not accept these things. Why doesn't he accept them? Because the preaching of the cross is folly. Its content is folly. Its method of declaration is folly. No human is able to be smart enough to reason themselves to Christ. It's not a matter of intelligence. Nor is anyone so noble that they get Christ. These are not actually helps. In fact, those who are wealthy, those who are good and noble, those who are filled with their own wisdom, do not get to Christ until they submit to the wisdom and nobility and plan of God. So the preaching, Paul's preaching in weakness, is intended to highlight the glory of God's saving power through the ministry of the powerful spirit because he takes people who can't get the gospel, chapter 2, verse 14, and enlivens their minds and gives them faith to believe. The natural man cannot apprehend, does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him. So we preach Christ. It's folly in content, folly in method, because it is the wisdom of God to shame the proud, to break the wisdom of the wise, to bring people to saving, humble faith in Christ, not themselves. So if a church is going to have a solid foundation, it must preach Christ. I want to continue on and just kind of, this is where I'm going to build your filter a little bit. I think one of the challenges in ministries, and I think even the presentation of the gospel, can be so flawed because we, we, we try to make the gospel almost like steps. Or we try to break it apart as we communicate it to people. And so we might say to a young child as we're trying to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, ways that are actually not helpful to their faith. So I, I want to draw attention to the way I'm saying that, not helpful. You say something like this, you just pray this prayer, you can be saved. That's a terrifying sentence. Don't ever say that to a child again. Okay, a prayer has never saved anyone and never will. God saves. What we should be telling people is the gospel, which is namely Jesus Christ. So, so if I were to like try to sentence out the gospel, I might think through it in, in kind of a sequential way in which the almighty God who is holy made this world and all that it is in it without sin. He made Adam and Eve without sin. 
And yet because of, and I would say it this way to frame the gospel later, yet because of distrust in God's goodness and a desire to be autonomous, that is to be independent of the authority of God, Adam and Eve rebelled against him. And by choosing sin, brought about on themselves the penalty of sin, which is death and separation from God, with me so far in the gospel. This is the gospel. Sounds pretty rough right now, right? Right now we've gone from God made us perfect and we messed it up bad and now we deserve judgment, right? Having, having done that, we put ourselves in an unrescuable spot by ourselves so that God in grace has sent his son, who is God of gods, to become man so that while maintaining entire deity, he did not lose any of his godness. He is still fully nature God. He added to himself the nature of humanity so that in the one person, Jesus Christ, he might die for men so that all who believe and trust in him will be saved, forgiven of their sins, and restored to fellowship with that holy God. Jesus Christ is the center of the saving work of God in whom, if you do not trust and you remain in disbelief, let me use those words again, if you do not trust and you try to remain autonomous, you are damned forever as someone who has rejected God's grace and will then receive the punishment that is righteously given to all sinners who do not have Christ. That's the gospel. That being the gospel... Oftentimes what we do is we pull apart the blessings from the person. We'll say something like this. If you just do X, believe X, think X, you'll get eternal life. Is that untrue? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I feel like this is a trick question from our pastor because he always gives these things. Okay, here's the problem with that. We have sold the person of Christ on merely the blessings that come with him. Let's just change it up and ask on salting this was. If I would say to um, my son, let's imagine he's 22, and I'm like, hey, son, at some point you should move out of our house. So have you thought about getting married? And he's like, no, Dad, I'm not really interested. I'm like, well, hey, if you get married, she'll cook for you. <laughs> You'd be like, you're a loser. Why would you ever tell your kid that? That's a rotten reason to get married, especially if she's a bad cook. Like, you don't know these things. Like, if I were to sell my son on the, the goodness of marriage by talking about the benefits that might come with the person he marries, but never talk about the fact that you're binding yourself to the person. I mean, you would see this with, with like, Young people, when they're not ready to be married, they're like, well, he makes me feel good. Huh. What happens when he doesn't? What happens when you have a fight? If that's the anchor she's holding on to for why she should get married, like pull it up and sail away, girl. That is not enough. But we do that with the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. And so we try to convince people of all the, the side benefits, the fringe benefits that come when you get the person. And we divorce these two. Do you want heaven? Well, who doesn't? Do you want hell? No. Again, who wants it? Oh, if you want heaven and you don't want hell, 
I wonder if Jesus is sitting on the sideline going like, hey, did they get me? Or did they just get my gifts? I mean, maybe children would struggle with this at Christmas. They really want grandma and grandpa to visit because when they come, grandma and grandpa give good gifts. But they actually don't love grandma and grandpa. She's always got coffee breath and grandpa always is telling stories and it's just boring. But man, every December they're like, hey, are grandma and grandpa coming? That's a heartbreaking view of Christ. That's not who he is at all. Let me just see if we can prove this in the text. Come back with me to chapter 30. And because of him speaking of God doing this work of beggaring people's pride and arrogance and nobility and self-worth and wisdom, God has, because of Jesus, right? He, he has become for us, verse 30, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus has become this. But notice how it works, verse 30. You are where? In him. So when we come to gospel sharing, we are not trying to convince people it's a good deal. We are trying to win them to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the worth of Jesus. And when they get Jesus, they get all of his graces. They get his redemption, his sanctification. They get forgiveness of sins. They get glorification as according to Roman 8. They get all of it. Listen, if you are selling Jesus by merely talking about his benefits, you're doing it wrong. On the flip side, they get the whole person. You don't get Jesus and not his lordship. My wife doesn't get me and not my bad breath. And Jesus has got no bad things. I don't want to use that analogy that way. But we sometimes don't really like his lordship because we still want like Adamic autonomy that led to sin and rebellion and death. We want him to be our savior, but not our king. We want him to be a savior who doesn't really want his people to be holy because holiness sometimes isn't what we want. Listen, if you get him, you get all of him. It's all good, but your flesh will tell you it's not all good. Let's see, again, if I can strengthen this confidence you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come with me to Ephesians. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father. Notice God gets praise and glory and blessing in 1.3. Because he has blessed us, catch this, in Christ. So God deserves glory because he has granted to us these graces. How? In union with Christ. Well, what has he given us with Christ? Every spiritual blessing. Did you catch that? Blessed be God. Why? Because he has granted to us through Christ and in union with Christ every spiritual blessing. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in You'll notice the ESV carefully capitalizes the B there for beloved in Jesus Christ, the beloved Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10. Now, let me take you back to verse 6. Speaking of salvation, 
Verse 5, we were dead. He has made us alive together. Where? With Christ. This is exactly what Romans 6 says, that we are raised with Christ. It is in union with Christ we receive the hope of the resurrection and even now in this life have received the gift of regeneration. Continue on. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. Notice he raised us with him and seated us with him. And if you didn't get that clear, in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Look in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are new creatures. We have been restored and made new in Christ for a purpose of good works. He doesn't stop there. Look in verse 19. He brings us into the church. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Verse 19, you are fellow citizens with saints, members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in case you didn't get it, he's that cornerstone of the church in which we are now united as the building of God. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure, in whom, in whom. It's in Jesus, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says it again. Verse 22, in him, you're being built together. Are you you sensing that to divorce the gospel so that Jesus and the graces he gives is actually to give a non-gospel? It's not the gospel at all to promise the blessings and not call people to the person. It's a false gospel. So when you're interacting and engaging with evaluating how to think about peoples and ministries and whether or not to be part of something, what we must do is ask this question, do they do damage to the person and work of Jesus? Is this the true gospel of Jesus Christ? And as we talk to our children, as we plead with our teenagers to trust and be saved, it's not trust and be saved unto eternal life. It is trust in Jesus and his work. It is to embrace Jesus by faith. It is to abandon autonomy. You know what autonomy means, right? Auto, by yourself. Namas, law. You are a law to yourself. Abandon that. You have a king. Obey him. This is the outworking and the fruit of repentance. And if we do not tell people to count the cost, that to get Christ is to get a king, then they do not understand the goodness of Christ. 3.13. He continues his... I may have miswrote that reference down. And I will assume I have because I don't see it in my text. You can see very clearly... That Christ is the center of the gospel. So as we go back to 1 Corinthians 3, consider this then. We preach Christ, the foundation of the church. There is no other foundation. As we consider ministries, as we consider our own church, as we consider church planters, as we minister among our church family, 
We must be people who are constantly calling people to embrace and fully submit to the person of Christ. Whether they say they are believers or not, that is the constant anthem of the church. Christ is glorious. He is worth all the world. And if you have Christ, you have it all. There are no graces kept away from you. I think that would be part of the way I would, I would challenge you to consider ministries. If they have a second work of grace, they are messing up the gospel. That is, in order to get saved, you get some of Christ's graces, but there needs to be some secondary decision, some crisis moment, some filling of the Spirit, some baptism of the Spirit, some type of secondary thing. They're messing up the gospel, and we dare not. Okay, so here's my sentence so far. I'm halfway through. For the glory of God, we preach Christ. Look with me in verse 12. It gives applicational reason. Now, if anyone built on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now, now let's just pause and do a little bit of exegesis before we move on. The difference between these is not value, although that's inevitably true, that gold is better than straw in terms of value. The issue with these is their endurance in fire. Gold, silver, precious stones survive fires really well. In fact, we purify silver and gold in fires. Wood, hay, and straw, or stubble as some translations say, don't do very well in fire. I want you to imagine that we build a house out of straw, and we build one house out of diamonds, and we light fire to both. What's left in the diamond house? What's left in the straw house? Okay, here we go. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as escaping or, or as through fire. The idea being your house is on fire, it's burning to ash, and you dive out at the last minute with just your night clothes on. You alone survive, your house is ashes. Okay, so, so picture this then. If I am building on a foundation that is not Jesus Christ, I am building a house, a church, out of wood, hay, and straw. When do I know it's wood, hay, straw? It says the day, talking about judgment day. We'll reveal it. It'll be tested. And he gives this metaphor of testing. It'll be tested by fire. And fire will consume the house so that what's left? Nothing, essentially. That's the point, right? The other house, built out of gold or silver or stones, and again, he says precious stones. I do think value is at least some part in his mind. That house survives the fire, right? I want you to consider for a moment then, what exactly is the house? And like I, I'm, I'm, he's talking to the church about the work of the church, particularly its gospel ministers, Apollos and Paul being foremost in his mind in terms of examples, but I think he's talking about in the future as well. So he's saying the preaching and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation it must be on, and everyone's work will be revealed in the day. Some works will be consumed because they're not built on Christ. Some will endure because they are built on Christ. I'm going to ask you the question again. What is the work? 
It's the church. What's the church? Is it windows and buildings? What's the church? It's people. So now I want you to drive that analogy back through your mind. On judgment day, as God assesses the ministry of the laborers within a church, and he tests it by fire, and it's consumed up, versus the other one that endures to glory, we have people implicitly mentioned. That is, a false gospel ministry not centered on Christ or doctrinally deviant from the Scripture's representation of Christ and salvation will lead people to being consumed in God's judgment fires. In other words, getting the gospel right is the means by which God saves and makes his church to get it wrong, builds a church in visibility that is ultimately doomed to damnation. How important is it that we as a church, particularly as leaders, get this right? Your soul depends upon it. Your eternal destiny depends on getting this right. So let me just make this appeal. If Christ is not yours, trust and repent of your sin. Jesus is worth it. And until Jesus is glorious, sin is going to be so tantalizing and powerful to you. Until Jesus is worth it, you will find yourself constantly tempted to stray back into sin. Jesus is worth abandoning the world for. And certainly your sin is worth giving up for owning Jesus. Let nothing hold you back. Get Jesus. Trust in him. He is the glorious Savior. He is the King. Trust in what the Bible says about him, that God saves us through the work of Jesus as we respond to him by faith and repentance. God is so gracious. I think verse 14 of chapter 2 reminds us that even faith is granted to us through the ministry of the Spirit. So, Paul says, here's what it looks like to found a church on Christ. It brings about an enduring work, so we can say it this way. We preach for the glory of God by preaching Christ, the hope for men. And let me just finally say this, and the safety of the church. And you're going to see indirectly the safety of the preacher. Look with me down in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, this is kind of off-center of the theme, I think, of the text, because he's going somewhere, but just stop and consider the majesty of what was just said. You are God's temple. And this is where God dwells. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, you would see that God dwelt in his temple, particularly the Holy of Holies between the cherubim, right? It was a sacred space that was held away from all of Israel except for one high priest once a year, you could not go into this sacred place where God dwells. You didn't belong. You could not go there. Even the high priest can go there without massive ritual sacrifices by which he's expressing faith in God's work of atoning for sin through the sacrificial death of an innocent. And even he had a rope tied to him lest he offend God's holiness and get dragged out by his ankles because he had been killed for bringing sin into the presence of God. It was a sober thing. It was a terrifying thing. And it was one of the most precious opportunities for any of the Israelites to be that man that year brought into the very presence of God. 
I think one of the concerns I have is a growing comfort in our culture with feeling God's presence, with wanting some euphoric, tingly feeling. And, and, and music can do this artificially, right? Like, I love our church's singing. And sometimes when our church sings, it does feel like I'm in God's presence. That's a, that's a false measure. Just telling you that that's a false measure. You should feel the theology in the sense that that theology gives you hope and joy and confidence as your faith is strengthened by the gathering of God's people singing praises to his name. But sometimes there are songs that are just kind of dreary. It's not as though like God's like, yeah, I'm out because that song's kind of slow for me. And then when the song's like, that's moving, God's like, oh, I'm back in. What a bizarre, horrific view of God's presence. Look at this text again. You tell me where God dwells. He dwells in his people's church. As we gather, you want to know if God is present? You don't go for feelings. That's a false measure. You go for this confidence. God says he dwells there. By faith, I know that God's presence is here among us right now. How do I know that? The Bible tells me so, and I believe the Bible. I have absolute confidence he's here. You know what I don't have confidence with? When you're driving down the road, you've had a huge fight with your wife, and a good song comes on, and your hands are moving off the steering wheel because it's so good. I don't know what you're feeling, but you got to get right with your wife and God. I know this. God is here. And it's not measured by anything I'm feeling, but by the promise that he'll be present with his people. That's awesome. But the real point is to get to verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's a rough one. Right? So he's talking about gospel ministry. For the glory of God, we preach Christ, the hope for men, and the safety of his church. Because here's the point, he's saying it kind of, he's, he's pressing on the Corinthians to see it. If you get the gospel wrong, you wreck the church. Right? You tear it down. You do damage. You ruin it. If you get the gospel wrong, you are doing harm. And so God invokes this promise. This is my temple. This is my sacred place. This is where I dwell. I dwell among my people. They are my people. You mess with them. You mess with me. They are my treasured temple where I dwell. Don't you dare tear it down by messing up the gospel. When you get the gospel wrong, you're, a, you're going with a little chisel and start knocking out stones in God's house. And God says, okay. That's how you're going to understand and how cavalierly you're going to take the gospel. Then I promise I will bring it to you in just repayment. Right? This is a promise of in-kind justice. If you, if you like kind of the intellectual side of things, lex talionis, that is the law of the, uh, the claw and talon, would be the way you would refer to this. That is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth might be the way you would think of it. And God says, okay. You take an eye, I take an eye. Well, how do you do this? 
You call people to a faith not centered in Christ. And you probably, in the context of church life, aren't doing this by preaching the devil. You're doing this by taking Christ and misrepresenting his gospel. You're taking this by getting it wrong by degree, not by total abandonment. And God says, I stand guardian over my temple. Don't you dare hurt her. So how do we get it right? We get the gospel of Christ center. We demand it from the pulpit and from our ministers in our children's ministries. As soon as we are sharing God's truth with them, we must share it as the Christocentric truth it is. We dare not get it wrong. And just in case you're missing it, if you get it wrong, God deals with you as an individual. So the accountability is that you be guarding this church. Because he's talking to the Corinthians. And he's telling them, hey, if you bring in gospel ministers and they get it wrong, I will go after them. I don't think he's saying, but Corinthians, don't mind. You can bring in bad preachers and I'm not going to deal with you. The warning's for the whole church. Okay, so here's my full sentence. Church ministry is to be done for the glory of God by preaching Christ for the hope of men and the health of the church. To get it wrong, you will see God's gathered people not be God's. You'll see a gathered people that's ultimately going to hell. And the preacher is putting himself under God's judgment. To get it right then is that we would see God's people saved and secured forever. And you go back and you look at what he says about him and Apollos. And he says that we are doing this for God, verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will do what? Receive his wages. So it's not as though he's saying those who do it well get nothing. He's saying those who do it well are actually granted grace by God. There's a shepherd's crown promise to faithful pastors. But I would suggest to you that all of us who faithfully ministered are promised reward by our Savior. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servants, to all those who are good and faithful servants. So it's not just a promise of retribution. Our God is just. Retribution has two ways of moving. Those who minister in the Spirit and by the truth of Christ are rewarded as faithful. Those who are unfaithful are rewarded in kind to the damage they've done to the people of God. So, if you're going to involve yourself in ministries, if you're going to partner with people, if you're going to consider a church, if the Lord is not calling you to this church or he calls you away from this church, make certain that they hold high Christ and they do it with integrity. Ways in which I think we see the gospel messed up in our culture are by adding duties to the gospel. What is required to receive Christ? No work. And so here's my concern on the second work of grace things. You see someone come to Christ, and whether it's at a Christian camp or, or some other ministry, and there's something else required for them to do before they get the full Christ. That's legalism. Because now, I don't get Christ upon salvation by grace alone. I get Christ after doing something. 
Listen, if you think you have to go to a certain type of church to get God's saving grace, you're adding to the gospel. If you have to come to a place of decision and faithfulness or duty or whatever else in order to get the full Christ, that's legalism. So we add to the gospel, we mess it up. So this is, I think, the travesty of Rome is that the Catholic Church says you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to get grace infused to you. That's nonsense. That's legalism. And that will build a church that gets burned up in God's judgment and to the damnation of those who minister that false gospel. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 says. So it's a false gospel by addition. But we could just as well do it by subtraction. Right? Like if we don't tell people that Christ, Jesus, is the Son of God. I have no idea how you think that gospel of a non-God dying to save sinners does anyone any good. If they don't know that he comes down as our representative, as a second Adam to die for us, that he might represent us before God so that we become holy in God's assessment as under this second Adam, you are getting it wrong. So we can't just... Go real simple. Like, just believe. Well, believe in what? And as soon as we go to the what, the gospel gets rich. Let's make sure we get the gospel right. We get out impurities. We get out those ways in which we add to Christ or take away from Christ or we add labors or benefits or works we must do in order for Christ to grant us forgiveness, we make sure we give people the pure gospel without addition, without subtraction, without mutation, without deformation, or we do terrifying work because people will think they're saved and happily on their way to a grave from which they'll never wake in glory but they will awaken judgment. That is not a light thing that the church has a responsibility to protect, to cherish, to hold high. Let me encourage you just as gospel proclama uh, proclamation and as those parents and other ministry leaders who are assigned to this task of sharing the gospel, you minister with the word. I think God is very gracious. I do not know a gospel preacher who would say they've never said it wrong. Make sure you get it right as much as you can. Make sure you, you study and you work at understanding Christ and his work well. But if you call people to Christ, you're doing it right. Call people to Jesus Christ, that they might love him, that they might trust him, that they might grant him all of the glory and the worship and the honor he deserves. Call people to Jesus, not to decisions, not to benefits, not to... Avoid punishments, but call them to Christ himself. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. We call people to come to our Savior. He is the bread from heaven from which all men can be satisfied if they come to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts to love Jesus more. We are so distracted. We are so often busy. Lord, the glory of Christ often seems inglorious compared to our own self-centered, busy lives. Would you forgive us for this neglect? Would you strengthen our hearts that by eyes of faith we might see how worthy Christ is to be our center? 
to be our hope, the reason for which we do what we do. Father in heaven, I pray that you would strengthen this church to magnify and glorify Jesus Christ, that his name might always be praised as worthy. Father, I ask that you would strengthen our church family to love Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ, and turn from sin. Father, I pray that for those in this church building, I ask that you might save them if they are unsaved. Knowing that those who have Christ already have eternal life, I ask that you might secure them to Christ. For those who do not have Christ, I ask that you might give them through the Spirit eyes to see the beauty, the worth of Christ. That they might turn from sin and cling to Christ. I ask that you might do these things, that you might bring glory to Jesus, thereby to yourself, that you might strengthen your church forever, and that she might stand as a glorious bride with Christ one day in the future. That you might deliver to your son an inheritance of silver and gold and precious stones, as you have promised. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.